Hello and welcome to Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. My name is HJ Doom and this episode we're delving into a classic Ian Livingstone penned book, The Temple of Terror. Temple of Terror was released in 1985 with internal art by Bill Houston and cover art, at least in the edition I've got, by Chris Akelios. It's a longish recording, this one, so let's just dive straight in. So I have rolled up my character for Temple of Terror, who I've decided to name Hambo Larkbother. They've got a skill of 10, a stamina of 20, and a luck of 10, which is at the bottom end of above average. In terms of equipment, we've got the classic sword and leather armour, and 10 provisions, and a lantern. So this really does feel like a kind of back-to-basics approach, which I, for one, am quite ready for. So let's dive in and hope that the introduction is a little brisker than the last game book we featured. Perhaps it was because he was born during a full moon, with wolves howling around his mother's forest hut, that Mal Bordas's nature was evil. Perhaps it was something more sinister than that. But it is certain that after his mother abandoned him, Mal Bordas grew up in Darkwood Forest in the care of Darkseid elves. He was taught the elves' wicked ways, and also discovered powers of his own. He could make plants wither and die simply by snapping his fingers. He could make animals obey him with his piercing gaze. The elves urged him on and helped him develop his powers so that they could teach him the arcane and evil magic of the ancient elf lords, magic so vile and powerful that it kills unworthy users. In pursuit of such evil powers, Malbordus grew into manhood. In order to prove to the elves that he was ready to receive the elf lord's knowledge, he first had to pass a test. He was ordered to journey south to the Desert of Skulls to find a lost city of Vatos. In the city were hidden five dragon artefacts which we would have to bring and collect. A simple incantation would bring the dragons to life to serve the forces of evil. Malbordus would then instruct them to fly him back to Darkwood Forest, where a massive army would be assembling. He would receive the ancient powers and lead the hordes of chaos across Alansia in an unstoppable wave of death and destruction. So, already we're getting a little hint of that classic Ian Livingstone scavenger hunt. I feel as though we might be setting out to find five dragon artefacts ourselves. Also, nice to see evil elves... Still something of a novelty when this book was released. It was only by a stroke of luck that these terrible plans were discovered. On the edge of Darkwood Forest lived a strange old wizard named Yastromo, who we have of course met. Something of an eccentric, he lived alone in his tower, practising simple magic and communicating with animals and birds. He was always willing to sell small magical items so that he could afford to have brought to him delicious cakes from all over Alansia. His sweet tooth was the cause of his only link with the outside world, as he rarely left the tower. It was therefore much to everyone's surprise that he came huffing and puffing into the village of Stonebridge. What could possibly have forced old Yaz Tromo to venture through Darkwood Forest to Stonebridge? All the dwarves who lived there were eager to find out, and a message was sent to Gillibrand their king. After the rigours of a recent quest, you are resting in Stonebridge, enjoying the merry company of the dwarves. That's interesting. This could be taking place almost immediately after Forest of Doom. Backstory. 
That's exciting. Your wounds are almost healed, and the local blacksmith has honed the blade of your sword as only dwarves can. Resting on a porch with your feet up on the railing, you are intrigued by the commotion in front of you in the village square. Followed by a throng of inquisitive dwarves, Yaz Tromo climbs the stone steps of Gillibrand's house and is warmly greeted at the top by the king. I cannot remember whether I said Gillibrand or Gillibrand last time. I'm going to go with Gillibrand because, to me, Gillibrand sounds like a breakfast cereal more than Gillibrand does. The crowd falls silent when Gillibrand raises his hand and Yastromo turns to speak. You slide out of your chair and join the crowd to hear what the wizard has to say. With a glum expression, his face almost as long as his beard, Yastromo relates the bad news concerning Malbordus. The dwarves look up apprehensively, as though expecting the five dragons to descend on them at any moment. He calls to them to show courage, saying, Friends, look on the bright side. At least we are warned of our impending doom thanks to my pet crow. You overheard the conversation between the Dark Elves and Malbordus. What we must do now is find somebody who can reach the lost city before Malbordus and destroy the dragon artifacts. We need a fearless young warrior who is willing to risk life and limb to save us all. Is there one among you who would volunteer? I'm only doing that voice because I'm willing to bet that I don't have to do it again. It's quite hard work, but I can do it for like a couple of paragraphs. That's fine. And indeed it is, as we suspected, going to be a scavenger hunt. Each dwarf looks around to see if another has dared to accept the challenge. Standing there... Watching the worried dwarves, you realise there is only one thing you can do. With a wry smile on your face, you raise your arm in the air and offer your services. Yastromo sees you and says, Haven't I seen you somewhere before? Never mind, you look like the kind of person we want. Make way for our brave volunteer. We must leave for my tower immediately. Come along, let's be off. You have a lot to learn, but I cannot teach you much until we are safely through Darkwood Forest and inside my laboratory. You hardly have time to cram your belongings into your backpack before the impatient wizard leads you out of Stonebridge towards his tower on the southern edge of Darkwood Forest. So, it's a much more efficient intro than the last time we played. Slightly aggravated to discover that I'm almost certainly going to have to do more of that silly voice, but hey-ho. So, uh, section one shows us a picture of Yaz Tromo with a slightly guilty expression, I'm going to say, on his face. It's um, quite cartoonish without being harsh. It's good. It's a good illustration, but it, it it's not a sort of realistic depiction. There's a comic book sensibility to it i would say with thick black lines and some quite heavy shading it looks nice it looks nice but he does look a bit guilty for an old man yaz tromo is surprisingly sprightly you cross red river and the ploughed fields beyond and soon reach the edge of the forest yaz tromo still doesn't stop and takes a narrow path leading into the dark wall of trees the light fades branches and knotted roots obstruct the twisting path and make the walk very tiring you ask Yastromo why he seems unconcerned at the possibility of being attacked by forest monsters. He chuckles, tells you that his magic is well known and respected by all the creatures for miles around. None would dare challenge Yastromo. 
After spending a peaceful night in the forest, you reach Yastromo's tower by mid-morning the next day. You follow him up the spiral staircase to a large room at the top of the tower. Shelves, cupboards, cabinets line the wall and are filled with bottles, jars, boxes, books and all manner of strange artefacts. Yastromo slumps down in his old oak chair by now looking quite tired from the long journey. He reaches into his pocket and pulls out a fragile pair of gold-rimmed spectacles. After placing them on his nose, he peers at you over the top of them. You feel quite unnerved by his piercing gaze. Finally, he says, Anybody who would hope to defeat Malbordus must certainly know a little magic. You look bright enough to learn some, but I don't think you have time to absorb the ten spells I would like to teach you. By the way, I would like you to know how privileged you are to learn my magic. But uh, a crisis is a crisis. Now, let's get on with it. Which spells shall I teach you? You have the choice of open door, creature sleep, magic arrow, language, read symbols, light, fire, jump, detect trap, and create water. Hmm... So, uh, choose any of the following spells. You will be sent back to this reference after having learned a spell. As soon as you've learned four spells, uh, we kind of go on. Well, we're going to the desert. So, I'm going to learn a Create Water spell. Yaz Tromo explains that his Create Water spell will fill your hands with drinking water each time you cup them together. He tells you the incantation necessary to cast the spell and says that, curiously, this spell requires no energy at all to cast. Okay, that's good news. I will also take a Detect Trap spell, because, as we all know, if there's one thing I love, it's blundering into traps. Yaz Tromo explains that his Detect Trap spell will forewarn you of any dangerous trap which might be laid before you, although you will still have to overcome the problem using your own initiative. Oh dear, that doesn't bode well. He tells you the incantation necessary to cast the spell, and says that each time you use it, you will drain two stamina points of energy. Okay. We will go for our third spell for Open Door. Yaz Dromo explains that his Open Door spell will open any locked door. He tells you the incantation necessary to cast the spell and says that it will not drain your energy too much. Only two stamina points will be lost each time you use it. And for the last one, I will take Creature Sleep because if there's one thing I like doing, it's ensuring that any monster I face gets its requisite eight hours of sleep so that it's properly rested for the next adventurer who comes along. So yeah, creature sleep. Yaz Tromo explains that his creature sleep will put to sleep any humanoid monster. He tells you the incantation necessary and says it hardly drains your energy at all, merely by one stamina point each time you use it. Okay, this is already a tighter magic system than the Grail Quest magic system. There's no casting roll. But there is a cost associated with it, but you can use it within reason as many times as you like. And the fact that I think we're going to need prompts means that I, I, I think we'll be a little bit less cautious about using the spells, because by requiring prompts from the book, it kind of flags up opportunities uh, and requires you to hold less information in your brain, which is, is always handy, especially for, for younger readers and also people who are old like me and who can't really remember what they did this morning. So, that's all the spells. The old wizard looks at you solemnly and says, Every minute is vital. You must begin your journey immediately. Without doubt, Malbordus will learn of your mission to thwart him. May send an assassin or two after you. My crow will lead you as far as Catfish River. From there, you can take 
a river vessel to Port Black Sand, and then a sailing ship south, or you can journey overland to the Desert of Skulls. A grim task is ahead of you, but our thoughts are with you. As Tromo leads you back down the spiral staircase and out into the open, suddenly he gives a shrill whistle. A large crow immediately swoops down from the top of the tower and settles on his shoulder. Now, crow, guide our friend as far as the Catfish River. Make sure you keep a good lookout. The last thing we want is an ambush on our doorstep. You shake hands with Yaz Tromo and reassure him that you will destroy the dragons of Atos before Malbordas can attain his evil goal. He smiles and hands you a pouch containing 25 gold pieces. He then commands his crow to fly south. The crow squawks and flies off. You hurry after it, turning just once to wave goodbye to old Yaztromo. Walking through the tall grasses, a shiver runs down your spine at the thought of Malbordas' assassins coming after you. You travel steadily south, only deviating twice to circumvent danger spotted by the crow. Three hours later, you arrive at the banks of the Catfish River, a point which is spanned by a rope bridge. An old barge is moored to a jetty beneath the bridge, and you see several rough-looking customers unloading sacks. Do you wish to cross the bridge or buy passage on the barge to Port Blacksand? Well, there is a picture of the rough-looking customers, and I have to say they do look quite the near-do-wells, I have to say. I feel like they might be smugglers or similar. I am going to give them a wide berth and, yeah, cross the bridge, I think. You watch the crow fly back towards Yaz Tromo's tower before stepping onto the rope bridge. The crew of the barge are not concerned by your sudden appearance and continue with their various tasks. After crossing the bridge, you continue south across the scrubland. After an hour or so, you see smoke rising in the east. Do you wish to investigate the source of the smoke, or would you rather continue south? I will investigate. Of course I will investigate. You soon discover that the smoke is rising from the burning roof of a wooden hut. Two dark elves in their familiar black hooded cloaks are firing flaming arrows at the hut. Suddenly, a man appears at the door, forced out by the choking smoke. Armed with a sword and shield, you watch him run towards his attackers. Before you can help, he is cut down by two arrows. The dark elves step out from behind cover and walk towards their dead victim. Do you wish to attack the dark elves? Would you rather not get involved and just head south? Picture, again, kind of slightly comic booky, I would say, of the dark elves caught in the act of shooting this unfortunate soul down. Really dynamic pose, even though the figure of the dying man is is small. It's sort of bang in the centre of the frame, and there's a tremendous sense of sudden violence about the way his his limbs are sort of splayed. He's just in the act of falling over backwards. It's a characterful and evocative little piece. I feel as though murdering Dark Elves could provide me with some kind of clue, so I'm going to attack them and attempt to avenge this unknown person who may or may not have been a violent criminal. I have no way of knowing. I mean, for all I know, he was literally a serial killer, and the Dark Elves were doing their civic duty by setting fire to his house and shooting him in the face with arrows. But, you know, they're called Dark Elves. They're in league with Malbordus, so I, I think attacking them seems like a good plan. You draw your sword and run towards the murdering Dark Elves. Fight them one at a time. The first Dark Elf has a skill of five and a stamina of six. Second, a skill of six, a stamina of five. So, for the first time in this adventure game book, I'm going to roll some dice. I have killed the Dark Elves and nary a scratch on me. 
So I have one, I find two gold pieces amongst their belongings, and I can take one of their bows and the two remaining arrows. After burying the poor man who was killed by the elves, you set off south again. A nice little encounter served very nicely to highlight the evilness of the Dark Elves in a way that it's not a challenging encounter, but it does, you know, hammer home the evilness of your adversaries. Although the scrubland is quite barren, you are surprised to see a patch of ground which is totally black. There is a smell of decay in the air, which seems to be coming from the black patch. Holding your nose, you walk over to inspect the patch and see that there is a bronze medallion lying in its centre, with a letter M etched deeply into it. Could the medallion have been dropped accidentally by Malbordus? Do you wish to pick up the medallion, or would you rather leave it where it is lying and walk on south? I mean, it's an obvious trap, isn't it? It is an obvious trap, so I'm still going to pick up the bronze medallion. Ugh. I just can't resist it, can I? I really am an absolute sucker for this kind of thing. You step onto the black patch and pick up the bronze medallion. Although it feels cold to the touch, you see with horror that the flesh on your hand is burning. Test your luck. I am lucky. Roll of four. You drop the burning medallion on the sand and see a large letter M painfully branded on the palm of your hand. Fortunately, it's not your sword arm which is affected. Lose one stamina point. Okay, stamina now 19. Realising that Malbordas must be ahead of you, you continue south as quickly as possible. The day wears on and you make good progress over the flat scrubland. When it is finally too dark to walk any further, you find shelter in a cluster of boulders. Roll one die. If you roll a one... One thing happens, roll something else, anything else, something else happens. So we roll a two. So maybe anything else happens. The night passes without incident and you wake at dawn feeling refreshed. Add two stamina points. Stamina now back up to 20. You sling your backpack onto your shoulders and set off again. Up ahead in the sky, you see something flying towards you. As it gets closer, you see it is a creature with the body of a large bird of prey, but the upper torso of a woman begins to emit a piercing shriek which you instantly recognise. You frantically plug your ears with cloth that you rip from your shirt so as not to hear the mesmerising call of the dreaded harpy. If you can and wish to, you can cast a magic arrow spell. Well, I can't, so I must fight the harpy with my sword. The vicious harpy swoops down to attack you with its razor-sharp talons. The harpy has a skill of eight and a stamina of five. I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the Harpy. It reduced me to 14 stamina points. So after stabbing it to death, I'm taking the opportunity to scarf down a chicken tikka slice. And that's got me back up to 18 stamina points. If you win, you set off south again, keeping a watchful eye out for other hostile creatures. As you walk along, a leather pouch suddenly drops out of the sky to the ground in front of you. You open the pouch and find a note inside written by Yastromo. It says, Friend, I have learned of bad news. Malbordus is already ahead of you. But look up, for help is at hand to enable you to catch up. Obeying his instruction, you look up and at first think another harpy is above you. And then you see that it is a giant eagle gliding through the air. The eagle circles above you and then lands with effortless ease close by. Pleased that old Yaztremo is concerned for your life, you climb onto the back of the eagle. You are soon riding through the air, travelling quickly towards the Desert of Skulls. This feels like a classic 
encounter designed to highlight the fact that I should have just gone by boat to Port Black Sand rather than choosing to walk slowly to the Desert of Skulls. However, your good fortune is quickly brought to an end when you hear an ominous screeching above you. Like a giant diving gannet, a hideous pterodactyl swoops down to attack the eagle. Are you carrying a bow and arrow? I am carrying a bow and arrow, so that's a bit of luck. Might help with this nightmare. The diving pterodactyl is a difficult target to hit, and you aim carefully before releasing the arrow. Roll two dice, add three to the total. Is it less than your skill? No. The arrow misses its target and the pterodactyl closes in to attack. So down to one arrow. You draw your sword and try to cut down the eagle's fearsome attacker, but the pterodactyl stays out of your reach and you are unable to help in the battle between the two flying creatures. Resolve the battle between the eagle and the pterodactyl. Well, that's fun, isn't it? That's a, another new twist on the combat system, getting you to fight two different creatures against each other. That's very neat. Very neat. 14 books in, still finding fun ways to innovate on the world's simplest combat system. There's definitely something, uh, some learning there, I think, that you can potentially take to make many RPG encounters a little bit more interesting if you just think laterally. So our giant eagle has a skill of six and a stamina of 11, but the pterodactyl has a skill of eight and a stamina of nine. On behalf of these two giant avian creatures, I'm going to roll some dice. Well, my giant eagle fought fairly valiantly, reducing the pterodactyl to three stamina, but sadly that wasn't enough to win the aerial contest of arms, so we're going to find out what happens if the pterodactyl wins. Maybe I can jump onto the back of the pterodactyl while it's distracted, murdering my eagle. No, no I can't. The body of the eagle shudders as it receives the death blow. You drop out of the sky like a stone and land fatally on the ground below. Your adventure is over. Well, it's a bit early for adventures being over, so I will invoke the sausage finger bookmark rule and we will proceed as if we had won the aerial battle between the eagle and the pterodactyl. It does mean that uh, we can add the <laughs> Temple of Terror to the enormously long list of adventure game books I have entirely failed to legitimately complete on a first playthrough. Seizing the pterodactyl in its sharp talons, the eagle tears at its neck with its sharp curved beak. The pterodactyl's death squawk grows fainter as the huge flying reptile plummets to the ground like a stone. You cheer the valiant eagle as it continues to fly south. After flying over Whitewater River, the terrain becomes gradually more arid. When at last you reach the edge of the desert, the eagle flies down to land. It is dusk, and the eagle does not intend to fly into the desert. You dismount and look around for a place to shelter and opt for a hollow in the crusty sand. You awake soon after dawn, but are disheartened to find the eagle has flown off home, presumably recognising that hanging around with me for any length of time is likely to be severely injurious to its health. You stare out into the desert landscape and see nothing but barren sand. Wondering what fate will befall you in the wilderness, you start the long walk south. As the sun rises, it quickly becomes uncomfortably hot. By noon, your mouth is parched and your thirst is unbearable. Are you able to cast a create water spell? Well, for once, I correctly divined that deserts and some ability to create water 
would go together nicely, so I can. You cup your hands together and say the words of the Create Water spell. Water suddenly fills your hands and you gulf it down in long, delicious mouthfuls. The afternoon sun continues to beat down relentlessly, its intensity causing shimmering waves of heat to rise from the parched sand. When you have finally drunk your fill, you separate your hands to stop the flow of water and press on towards the desert. You walk by the dry, white skeleton of some unknown large creature and notice the corner of a wooden box jutting out of the sand inside the ribcage of the dead beast. Do you wish to dig the box out of the sand and open it, or would you rather keep on walking? Well, I will have a look at it. There is a picture of the ribcage of a dead beast, and considering that Ian Livingstone has completely failed to describe the beast other than large, I think... The artist has done a pretty decent job of doing something that is an indeterminate large skeleton. So yeah, my commendations to Bill Houston. Yeah, we're definitely going to have a look, aren't we? Inside the wooden box, you find a mirror and a sealed clay pot. You put the mirror in your backpack. Excellent. If there's a Medusa, we are sorted. Are we going to break the clay pot? I mean, there's an old adage that I've often applied. If you've had some good luck, you don't push it. So we will leave the clay pot where it is, figuring that having given us a mirror, Ian Livingstone, being of the stingy variety, generally speaking, would have probably made the other one a trap. So we will we will leave it to it. You have walked for only about an hour when the sun begins to set. The flat desert sand offers no shelter, and you are forced to sleep out in the open. The night passes without incident, and you are soon on your way again. By mid-morning, your thirst is great, and you long for a drink of water. You search around, and suddenly see a bulbous green plant covered in sharp spikes. It looks like a small, round cactus. Do you want to cut the plant open with your sword, or do you want to cast a create water spell, or just press on south? I mean, I can create water. I don't need to go messing with potentially poisonous cacti or a potentially poisonous cactus, so I'm just going to cast Create Water. You cup your hands together and chant the spell. Water fills your hands and you gulp it down. When you've drunk all you want, you separate your hands and press on south. Walking steadily south, you are unaware of unseen danger in front of you. Your right foot sinks into the sand and you feel a sharp pain as something begins to tear at the flesh of your leg. You stab your sword into the sand as a sand snapper tries to overcome you. It shudders, and the sand is shaken off its brown body to reveal its gaping maw crammed with cutting teeth. It's impossible to penetrate the thick scales covering its hide. Some of the scales are suddenly pushed apart by two long tentacles which try and grab you and pull you into the sand snapper's mouth. Ignoring the pain in your leg, you begin to hack at the tough tentacles. The first tentacle has a skill of seven and a stamina of seven. The second tentacle also has a skill of seven and a stamina of seven. There is an illustration of the Sand Snapper, and he's gone for, I guess, a sort of crocodile-esque thing, but with these two grasping pseudopods coming from either side of the gaping mouth. It's another really decent, if cartoonish, illustration. Like it. Now, there's a special rule for this combat if either of the two tentacles wins two consecutive attack rounds during the combat. So, let's hope... That doesn't happen because I would quite like to actually reach the Temple of Terror rather than die on the outskirts. So I'm going to roll some dice. 
I defeated both the tentacles. They never managed to win two consecutive attack rounds, but they did knock four stamina points off me. So I have taken the opportunity also to refresh myself with figurative vegan chocolate cake, as well as actually in real life refreshing myself with vegan chocolate cake, meaning that both Hambo, Lark, Bother and me are technically healthier than we were a few minutes ago. So let's see what happens when we cut off both tentacles. The tentacles carry the two main nerves of the Sand Snapper, which cannot function any longer. Its hideous maw falls open, and you are able to withdraw your badly cut leg. Lose four stamina points and one skill point. Oh dear, that's not good. So skill down to nine, stamina back down to 14. Plate of beans on toast, I reckon. Stamina back up to 18. After bandaging your leg with strips of torn shirt, you limp off south. Hmm, this is a classic Ian Livingstone. It kind of wants to murder you, and it's pretty upfront about that. It starts trying to murder you early doors and never really stops. You suddenly see movement in the sand being made by what looks like a large lizard. When it scurries closer, you see that its head is somewhat bird-like, and its eyes are large and yellow like those of a toad. It is a deadly basilisk. Do you want to fight it with your sword, cast a fire spell if you can, which I can't, or rummage through your backpack for another weapon? Well, I'm going to be rummaging for that there mirror that I found earlier. There's a picture of the basilisk. It looks, yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Evil lidded eyes, a forked tongue, a sneering sort of lizard mouth. Yeah, it's a decent illustration. You suddenly remember that a single glance from the piercing eyes of a basilisk is enough to kill. Do you possess a mirror? I surely do. With your eyes shut, you hold out the mirror at arm's length. You have discovered its only weakness. The basilisk perishes by the strength of its own reflection. Hardly daring to look at the dead basilisk, you hurry on south as fast as you can. On. And on you walk, under the searing desert sun. Late in the afternoon, you see footprints in the sand leading from east to west across your path. Do you wish to follow the footprints, or would you rather keep walking south? I'm going to follow the footprints. What's the worst that can happen? Before long, you reach the body of a man lying face down in the sand. There is no blood or any other sign of him having been attacked, yet he's dead. Despite having a water canister which is only half empty, there is a look of agony on the dead man's face as if he'd witnessed something inexplicably terrible. There is nothing belonging to the man which is of any use to you, apart from the water canister. You place it in your backpack and head south again. Half an hour later, you see a low brown tent which you recognise as the type used by desert nomads. A horse is tethered to one of the tent pegs. Do you wish to make contact with the nomad or would you rather head south to avoid the nomad? I will make contact. Maybe the nomad can tell me something to my advantage. You are no more than 10 metres from the tent when suddenly the flap is thrown back by a fat bearded man in yellow robes. His fingers adorned with ornate gold rings. He does not attempt to threaten you but beckons you inside his tent saying, Stranger, you look in need of a rest. Please accept my hospitality. I may even tempt you to buy some of my exotic wares. Sensing no apparent danger, you step inside his tent and squat down on top of a rug. The nomad, whose name you learn is Abdul, gives you food and water, which makes you feel much stronger. That gets us back to 20 stamina. Abdul then smiles and says, Now, what will you buy, my friend? 
He goes into great raptures about all the goods he has to sell, which you finally learn are as follows. I've got a big list. We have sealing wax, onyx egg, ivory beetle charm, bracelet of mermaid scale, silver mirror crystal key, ebony face mask and bone flute. There's a picture of Abjul. He looks a jolly sort of cove. His arms gesturing to the various items of bric-a-brac in his tent. And let me have a look and see how much all of the stuff would cost. Right, 15. Yeah, I can buy all of those. So I will. That leaves me with six gold pieces and a large amount of junk, some of which people will definitely be getting for birthday or Christmas presents. Abdul tells you that he thinks Vatos lies in the southern part of the Desert of Skulls, and you decide to take his advice. Thanking him for his help, you set off south. Not long after the tent is out of sight, you begin to feel a slight tremor in the ground beneath your feet. Suddenly, the sand starts to shift beneath you. It rises into the air and falls down in a great cascade to expose the long body of a huge worm. You realise with horror that a giant sandworm is about to engulf you with its spiked oval mouth. It is at least 20 metres long and you must fight it. Picture of the sandworm. I mean, you know, it's a sandworm off of Dune. If you've seen the David Lynch film or read the excellent book by Frank Herbert, you know exactly why this particular encounter was in there. It is a classic. The giant sandworm has a skill of 10 and a stamina of 20. I'm probably going to die again. Yeah, it's going to be a struggle, but who knows? Maybe, maybe I'll make it through. Regardless, I'm going to roll some dice. Well, with some very fluky rolling, I managed to defeat the giant sandworm. It reduced me to six stamina points. So I'm going to take the opportunity to scarf down some rice pudding, a couple of packs of Watsits, and a small roast suckling pig. I only have four sets of provisions left, and presumably terrible indigestion, but I am back to 18 stamina points. Really is classic Ian Livingstone. When in doubt, just throw in an absurdly difficult combat encounter for no particular reason. You chip off one of the sandworm's teeth, which may be useful as a weapon. Ah, more Dune references. You tuck it into your belt and continue south. You walk steadily on until the sun sinks behind the western horizon. Under the cloudless sky, the desert quickly becomes very cold. Can you cast a fire spell? I cannot. It is so cold that you are hardly able to sleep at all during the night. Lose three stamina points. You are wide awake and thankful when the dawn sun rises over the horizon to heat up the desert air. As soon as it is light enough to see where you are walking, you continue your trek to the south. The desert quickly heats up and you are soon toiling under the white sun. Not far to the west, you see what looks like a cluster of trees with large birds circling above them. Do you wish to walk over to the trees? An oasis. I mean, that's another classic desert encounter. I think we will do exactly that. As you get close, you see that the trees surround a pool of water. You have found an oasis. Do you wish to drink the water? Or would you rather continue south without drinking? We all remember the time I died of thirst one encounter away from a poisoned waterhole so let's not do that again i say we all remember that i remember that so i will continue south without drinking you suddenly stumble upon a large pile of rocks partly hidden by the wind-blown sand do you wish to investigate the rocks 
Or would you rather walk past them? I will investigate the rocks. As you pull away the rock, a scorpion runs out of the shadow of the dark crevice and stings you on the back of the hand. Lose four stamina points. Down to 11. I guess I'd better chuck a couple of meringues in custard down myself. I'm back to 15 at least. I mean, I get it. It's a desert. Deserts are inhospitable. But this does feel like extremely inhospitable, considering we've still got presumably some kind of dungeon to go through once we've traversed it. You crush the scorpion under your boot and carry on pulling away the rocks. In the middle of the rocks, you find a small white cotton sack, which is tied around a spherical object. Do you wish to untie the sack? Uh, yeah, I guess so. After untying the cord, you slowly pull open the cotton sack. Inside, you find a glass ball. Inside which, a tiny man with pointed ears and wings, wearing a pea-green costume, is jumping up and down in a joyous frenzy. Feels like someone's trapped a competitor on RuPaul's Drag Race. You cannot hear his voice through the glass, but you realise that the sprite wants to escape. Do you wish to release the sprite, or would you rather leave the sprite in his glass prison? I will work on the assumption that someone horrible put this sprite in the glass bubble. And I will break him out. You tap the glass ball on one of the rocks and watch it break open like an egg. The tiny sprite flies out, rejoicing at the top of his almost inaudibly high-pitched voice. He thanks you over and over again for releasing him from the entrapment spell. He sprinkles some sparkling dust on your head and says it will bring you good fortune. Add one luck point. Excellent. That's... A handy thing. He also advises you to make a headscarf out of the sack and cord to keep the sun off your head, as it is still a long way to Vatos. As you begin to tear open the sack, the sprite waves and flies away. With your head and neck protected, you stride off south. So some good luck. Long before noon, you are desperately thirsty. If you possess a water canister, you can use that, or you can cast a create water spell. Let's do the old create water spell. Really doing some great work, the Create Water spell. You cup your hands together and say the words of the Create Water spell. Water immediately fills your hands and you drink long and hard. Only when you separate your hands does the water stop flowing. Feeling refreshed, you set off in the direction of the noonday sun. Or straight up. The sun's relentless heat beats down on you, but there is nowhere on the desolate landscape to offer you shade. Are you wearing a headscarf? I am indeed. Although the heat is insufferable. Your headscarf protects you from sunstroke and you press resolutely on south. Staring into the shimmering haze, you see a high stone wall less than half a kilometre away. Various stone towers and roofs inside the wall protrude above it. As you get closer, you see that windblown sand has drifted high against the wall and no track or trail leads to the entrance gate. The gate is partly blocked with sand. Vatos, a voice inside you shouts. If you wish to try and open the wooden side door next to the entrance gate, you can. Or would you rather cast a jump spell? Don't have a jump spell, so let's go for opening the side door. The door is firmly shut and will not open. Do you wish to cast an open door spell? I have an open door spell, so we will do that. That's two stamina points. Down to 13 stamina points. As you whisper the words of the open door spell with your parched mouth, the door swings slowly inwards. Deduct two stamina points for casting the spell. See, nice reminder there that the spell costs stamina. Yeah, just a little quality of life thing. I mean, obviously, it's Ian Livingstone, so he's churlishly reminding you to knock some life off. But hey, you know, it still counts. Looking around, you see no sign of life. 
On the opposite side of a square there is a large stone archway. It seems as good a place as any to start your search for the dragon artefacts. You walk through the arch to a stone stairway which descends to a torch-lit corridor below. Always makes you wonder who's been lighting the torches, doesn't it? As you walk warily down the stone steps, you wonder where Malbordus might be. At the bottom of the steps, you see an iron casket. Do you wish to open the iron casket? Well, yes, because I've got to find dragon artefacts. I have to open literally everything that I come across. You prize open the chest and find a polished iron helm inside. Do you wish to place it on your head, or would you rather leave and walk south along the corridor? I will put it on my head, because I could really use some bonus skill. And maybe, just maybe, there's some bonus skill here. Yay! The helmet has been made by a skillful ironsmith. It will afford you greater protection. Add one skill point. Brilliant. Intent on finding the first dragon artefact, you walk south along the corridor. Ha <laughs> ha! Classic encounter time. As you walk down the corridor, you suddenly feel a light tap on your shoulder. You spin around and see a horrifying creature with ragged clothes on its thin body. Its hollow eyes and mouth are filled with thick slime, which makes its voice gurgle as it whispers the word DEATH in your ear. The messenger of death then disappears, but somehow you know what has happened. The messenger of death is a sadistic killer who plays games with its victims. Staying ahead of you, it will place each letter of the word death in various locations. Should you come across and read all of the letters of the word, the messenger of death will reappear to revel in the sight of your life draining away. Malbordus's assassin has given your search for the artefacts an unwanted twist. There is a picture of the messenger of death and it looks suitably grotesque. And there's sort of almost comic book-esque action lines around it as it sort of points menacingly towards the camera. Yeah, great illustration, great monster, very cruel, making it so that you've got to find the artefacts, but you might well happen across the letters of the word death as well. But hey, it's a classic encounter. The corridor ends at a T-junction. Patterned drapes hang down from ceiling to floor on the far wall. Will you pull back the drapes, turn left along the corridor or right along the corridor? Well, if I pull back the drapes, I feel as though the letter D will probably be waiting for me. I mean, what else is there realistically going to be? Well, it's our first opportunity to take a left turn, so let us take a left turn. The bare corridor turns sharply right. After ten metres, you see an alcove in the left-hand wall. A trickle of water drips from a bronze cherub's mouth into a bowl at its feet. Would you like to drink the water? I like the implication that I'm going to be drinking cherub spit. Uh, I think I would happily go without drinking cherub spit. Thank you very much, because I have a perfectly adequate create water spell all of my very own. So now we will continue walking along the corridor. The corridor turns sharply to the right again, and soon you arrive at another T-junction. The corridor is bare and uninteresting straight ahead, so you decide to turn left. After walking for some 50 metres, your progress is halted by a deep pit which spans the width of the corridor. If you can and wish to cast a jump spell, you can. Or otherwise you are forced to jump the pit without magic aid. So, subsequent playthrough, I feel like a jump spell might not be such a bad plan. You stand back and take a running jump over the pit. Roll two dice. Is the total the same or less than your skill? Well, good news. That uh, 
bronze helm makes me much better at jumping. Yep, just made it as well, actually. Um, roll of nine, I skill ten currently. So, you seem to hang in the air for ages, but eventually land on the ground beyond the pit. You waste no time and continue straight on. In the gloom of the torch-lit corridor, you see a horrible creature hovering in the air and blocking your path. It is round, with a large eye in the centre of its dark, scaly green skin, which is covered in spines. The eye stinger floats towards you, trying to mesmerise you with its hypnotic gaze and sting you with its spines. Do you wish to fight the killer with your sword, or would you rather look through your backpack for something to use? Uh, there's an illustration of the eye stinger, and I think the easiest way to describe it, it looks like the beholder, which is always picked last in PE. So we're going to rummage through the backpack. One of these doohickeys we've picked up surely must be good. And we've got multiple mirrors. Looking for a likely object with which to defeat the eye stinger, you must make a quick decision. Will you take a mirror, a pearl, an onyx egg, or none of these? Right, the mirror feels like an obvious trap. I don't have a pearl. That leaves the onyx egg. Because like, Ian Livingstone is not going to let you use the same trick twice. We've already had a basilisk. The eye stinger, I feel, is going to be... It's not going to do a weird hypnotode on itself. So I think we're going to go for the onyx egg as the odd one out. As soon as you reveal the onyx egg, eye stinger becomes motionless and closes its central eye. You seize your opportunity and run past the eye stinger, holding up the onyx egg to protect you. Hooray, well puzzled out me. Running along the corridor, you see an iron grill high up in the right-hand wall. Do you wish to prise it open, or would you rather walk on? Again, I'm going out on a limb and saying that an iron grill is not going to be where someone stashed a bunch of dragon amulets things. Is it dragon amulets we're looking for? Dragon artefacts. Anyway, I don't think anyone's going to have stashed one there. That seems like a place where the messenger of death might have stashed a letter of the word death. The corridor soon ends at a T-junction. Would you like to go left or right? Well, we've done a couple of left turns, haven't we? So I think it's only fair that we go right this time. You follow the corridor until it turns sharply left. On turning the corner, you see the floor is covered with broken glass. As you pick your way through the glass, a shadowy figure suddenly appears in the corridor ahead. You hear a shriek of laughter as a bottle is hurled at you. It shatters on the stone floor at your feet to reveal a piece of rolled-up parchment lying among the broken glass. Do you want to read what's on the parchment, or would you rather chase after whoever threw the bottle at you? Now, that doesn't feel like a messenger of death trick. I don't really see the messenger of death kind of going, shrieking with high-pitched laughter. So I think this one I can look at. The parchment is inscribed with strange symbols which you do not understand. Can you cast read symbols spell? I cannot. So, hey-ho. Unable to decipher the symbols, you decide to chase after whoever threw the bottle at you. By the time you are clear of the broken glass, there is nobody in sight. The corridor stretches on, passing through a stone archway on the left. Whoever threw the bottle did not run through the archway, so you continue straight on. The corridor finally ends at a T-junction, and you realise you are unlikely to find your assailant now. Wondering if it was perhaps Malbordus taunting you? You ponder which way to go, left or right. So, we did a right last time, let's do a left this time. No, let's do two rights in a row. I'm feeling good about right. As you walk along the corridor, you suddenly become aware of the sound of footsteps marching towards you. You want to see who is coming down the corridor. Would you rather turn back and hurry down the corridor straight past the last junction? Let's have a look and see who it is. 
Two figures come into sight. A chill runs down your spine. With armour hanging loosely on their yellow bones, two skeleton warriors. That's a niche reference. Walk jerkily towards you, armed with swords. First skeleton warrior has a skill of seven and a stamina of five. And the second skeleton warrior has a skill of six and a stamina of six. We're fighting them both at the same time, using the usual rules for fighting them both at the same time. I've got to beat both their attack totals to avoid being hurt, but I can only hurt one of them in turn, which is fair enough. So I'm going to uh, fight against these obscure 90s cartoon characters. And uh, yeah, we'll roll some dice. I have defeated the skeleton warriors. And um, that's the last time I'm going to do that. Even if they come up again, I'm not going to do that silly sting again. Um, you'll be relieved to know. I did take one hit, so I'm down to 11. So I guess it's, yeah, probably worth stuffing some foie gras into myself. Taking me up to 15 stamina. You take a shield from one of the broken skeletons and sling it over your arm at one skill point. Well, that's excellent news. The corridor finally ends at a wooden door which is firmly locked. Do you wish to cast an open door spell? Do you have an iron key or no means of opening the door? Well, I have the open door spell, so we'll do that. As you utter the words of the spell, the lock clicks open and you are able to push the door inwards. Reduce your stamina by two points for casting the spell. Stamina now 13. And press on. The door opens into a room which is bare except for two stone caskets lying open on the floor. It is unnaturally cold in the room and the light is very dim. In the corner you find a clay goblet with a heart etched inside the rim. You put the goblet inside your backpack and leave the room by the same door you entered, as there is no other exit. You walk down the corridor and past the last junction. Amount of stuff I've picked up on this adventure. This could be the only adventure ever to end with an impromptu car boot sale. You pass a doorway in the left-hand wall which has an ornately carved surrounding of hideous creatures being consumed by flames. Do you want to open the door or keep on walking? I mean, my head says leave it, but I do need to find a dragon artifact and dragons do set fire to things with their halitosis, so in we go. The door opens into a room which is empty apart from a large pile of bones lying in the corner. Scratch marks on the wall appear to have been made by claws. You hear growling from a low arch in the far wall. Suddenly, the door behind you opens and three large meat-covered bones are thrown into the room before the door is slammed shut again. The growling becomes loud barking and suddenly a huge, slavering death dog bounds into the room. It sees you and attacks immediately. There is a picture of the death dog. It looks like a death dog. Imagine what you think a death dog would look like. I promise you, you're probably bang on the money. The death dog has a skill of nine, stamina of ten for what feels like the hundredth time this adventure. I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the death dog. I was reduced to nine stamina, so I'm going to eat a pack of Werther's Original. Get myself back up to 13. I've got one more set of rations remaining me. You peer into the gloom of the death dog's lair and see that a dark tunnel stretches into the distance. Do you wish to crawl down the tunnel or would you rather leave the room and continue walking up the corridor? I will crawl down the tunnel. The light quickly fades as you crawl along the tunnel until you cannot see your hand in front of your face. Will you cast a light spell? Continue crawling in the dark or crawl back out of the tunnel, leave the room and walk up the corridor. I mean, crawling in the dark doesn't sound great. 
And let's uh, crawl back out the tunnel. I mean, they do have a lantern, irritatingly, which Ian Livingstone appears to have entirely forgotten about. But hey-ho, an Ian Livingstone dungeon is the last place you really want to be fumbling around on your hands and knees in the dark. The corridor turns right, and around the corner you see a man lying face down on the stone floor. He's wearing blood-stained armour, and his sword lies a metre away. He grunts on hearing your footsteps and tries to reach for his sword. Do you want to kick his sword away, run him through, or step over him and walk on? Well, let's do the polite thing and kick his sword away. Try and talk to him. You roll the dying man over and see that he has not long to live. Being a valiant warrior, he wanted to keep fighting to the very end. You ask him why he is here, for he clearly looks like an outsider. In an almost inaudible whisper, he replies, The golden skeleton, it's here, somewhere, beware, the shadow of the stone. Then he falls silent and still. You place his sword in his hand as he would have wanted and continue along the corridor. It soon turns right again and you reach an iron door in the right-hand wall. In the distance you can see glowing lights dancing about in the gloom of the corridor. Do you want to investigate the iron door or the moving lights? Let's try the iron door. The door opens into a room lit by torches set in the wall. Do you wish to walk across the dusty floor to an archway in the opposite wall? Or would you rather continue along the corridor towards the glowing lights? Um, let's go and have a look at the archway. As you step through the dust, your mind suddenly fills with horrific images. You scream in terror as you think you see the whole room become engulfed in flames. Your flesh appears to be burning and death seems imminent. Your nightmare drags on for several minutes and you fall unconscious under the strain. When you finally come to, you still feel terrified and your hands are trembling. Some of your courage is lost forever. Lose three skill points. So that takes me down to a skill of eight, undoing all of the good work that the Skeleton Warrior's shield and the helm were doing. That's not good. And we go off to investigate the dancing lights. As you move closer to the glowing lights, you realise that they are starting to move towards you. Three giant bugs with wings buzz loudly and close into attack. Fight to the giant fireflies one at a time. So, we've uh, got 13 hit points remaining us. First giant firefly has a skill of 5, stamina of 4. Second skill of 5, stamina 5. Third skill 4, stamina 6. And... Each time a firefly wins an attack round, roll one die. If it's a one to three, you lose an additional two stamina points from the discharge of electricity. Otherwise, it just does the normal amount of damage. So, um, hmm, this could be interesting. I should be able to defeat them all, but it's by no means guaranteed. So, with a slight sense of trepidation, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated the giant fireflies. It took me down collectively to seven stamina with one electrical discharge in the mix. So I'm going to eat my last bit of provisions, scarf down some smashed avocado on toast and take myself back up to 11. I no longer have any rations. Things are beginning to look a little bit bleak, but we press on. You carry on down the corridor, which finally leads into a large chamber lit by torches mounted on high walls. At the top, the walls slope inward to form a magnificent golden ceiling. A massive bronze idol stands in the middle of the chamber with its warhammer raised. We'll have to walk past the idol in order to reach the entrance of a tunnel in the far wall. 
If you walk to the left of the idol, go one way, or the right, go the other way. So there's a picture of the idol. If I walk to the left, I'm going to walk in front of it. If I walk to the right, I'm going to walk behind it. So I'm going to walk to the right and go behind that big, potentially swingy warhammer. You walk under the raised warhammer of the idol towards the tunnel entrance. You step into the tunnel and notice that the floor starts to slope downwards. It finally leads down to the edge of a flooded room. Water flows into the room through the mouth of a lion's head set in the wall. There is a ledge on the far wall which rises above the water and the tunnel continues beyond it. You shrug your shoulders and wade into the murky water. You are waist deep in the flooded room when a long tentacle breaks the surface. The water is stirred up as the monster thrashes around, sensing that food is nearby. Suddenly, another tentacle wraps itself around your leg and tries to drag you underwater. You draw your sword and begin hacking blindly at your attacker. Are you wearing a bracelet of mermaid scales? I surely am. As you stab into the water, your bracelet is briefly submerged. The tentacled monster is immediately repelled by it and swims silently away to the deepest part of the pool. You seize your chance, climb up to the ledge and escape down the tunnel. Excellent. Another tunnel branches off the one you are walking down to give you a choice of directions. Do you want to continue straight on or turn left along the new branch? Well, we haven't had an opportunity to go straight on, so that's what we're going to do. The tunnel eventually comes to a dead end. A solitary candle burns in an alcove and you see something glistening behind it. Do you wish to reach into the alcove or go back down the corridor? I still haven't found a single dragon artifact, so I'm going to reach into the alcove. You find a small silver box inside the alcove, which has a dragon motif etched into the lid. Something inside rattles when you shake the box. Do you want to open it? Yes. You lift the lid slowly, wondering what you might find inside. Much to your surprise and delight, you see a small ornament made of silver. A dragon artefact! You put the silver dragon in your pocket and walk back down the tunnel to turn right into the new branch. So there we go. Silver dragon. It's going straight on Antiques Roadshow once we're done with this adventure. Ahead, in the corridor, you see a cloaked figure carrying a lantern and walking away from you. You call out so that the figure only walks away faster. You hurry after it. And almost alongside it when it spins around to reveal its hideous face. Taut yellow skin is stretched over its skull. Its eyes are blood red and sunk deep in their sockets. Surviving the stare of a phantom requires great courage. Test your skill. Five, yeah, plenty. There is a picture of the phantom and he looks like a conservative life peer, if I'm completely honest. Looks as though he should be uh, dozing at the back of the House of Lords, only waking up to say something racist every once in a while. Still, we've survived its stare. Despite the Phantom's powerful stare, you keep control of your mind. With its arms outstretched, the Phantom closes in to touch you, in order to intensify its power. Do you want to fight it with your sword or rummage through the backpack? I'm going to have a good old rummage, thanks. Hoping to find something that might be effective against the phantom, you thrust your hand into your backpack. What will you throw at it? A pearl, a silver button, or an ivory beetle charm? Well, the only one of those I have is an ivory beetle charm, so we'll, we'll yeet that at it. 
The phantom snatches the charm out of the air and crushes it into dust. Oh dear. Laughing at your pathetic attempt to destroy it, the phantom grabs your arm with its free hand. You are instantly paralysed, lose four stamina points. Making us down to seven. By the time the feeling has returned to your limbs, the phantom is well out of sight. Walking stiffly along the tunnel, you continue your search. The tunnel finally ends at a T-junction. A cross passage shows signs of more frequent use. The walls are decorated with murals and tapestries, and there are torches at regular intervals to give plenty of light. Do you want to turn left towards the murals? Or right towards the tapestries? Oh, let's go and have a look at a mural. I love a mural, me. I'm mural mad. The mural stretches along the wall for approximately 20 metres and depicts a great battle. A mass of undead whipped on by vile orcs are pushing back an army of men and dwarves. The leader of the undead is hidden by dark robes apart from a fleshless reptilian skull. His cold, evil green eyes stare threateningly from the mural. He appears to be holding a casket which is drawing in the spirit of the king of the men and dwarfs for whom the battle seems lost. You are fascinated by the painted detail of the casket and marvel at its magnificence. Do you like my work? comes the sudden question from behind you. You spin round and see a man standing calmly with paint pots in his hand and a brush behind his ear. He is smiling and seems pleased that you are showing interest in his work. Do you want to attack him, reply to his question or push past him and walk on? Yeah, humour the nutter, I think. I will tell him that I like his work. The artist laughs and says, I never expected a compliment in this place of evil. No doubt you've been lured here with the promise of great wealth by the High Priestess Leisha. I have uh, staked my life on my reputation. Uh, perhaps you've uh, not heard that Leisha is a great lover of art, despite her cruel and terrible ways. Each year she secretly invites artists to perform their works inside the lost city. Down the corridor you'll see tapestries, and elsewhere there's wood carvings and etchings. She alone judges the work, and the result is, well, final. Very final. The winner receives 300 gold pieces, and the losers are sacrificed to honour the Dark One. Needless to say, I think I'm going to win. She gives us all a ring of protection to wear so that we can come to no harm while we work. My name is Merkeg, and I'm... Pleased to meet you. You ask him if he's heard of a man called Malbordus, but he shakes his head. You stress that it is very important that you find Malbordus, and he asks if he has any knowledge of the tunnels and passageways. Merkeg rubs his chin and replies, I'm afraid I cannot help you much, as I spend most of my time painting, but uh, I do know that Leisha's inner temple can only be reached by walking through the curtain of golden rain. Perhaps whoever it is you are looking for has been entertained by Leisha. All I can do is wish you luck. You shake hands with him and press on down the corridor. I feel like maybe I should have just stabbed him and taken his magic ring. The corridor bends to the right and you follow it round until you arrive at a closed door. You can hear agonised cries and a sadistic chuckle coming from inside the room. Do you want to turn the handle and push the door open or ignore the cries and keep walking? Sounds like someone's doing a bit of the old torture. And I think I'm going to find out who it is and, you know, either help or hinder, depending on how it's working. The door opens into a room which is filled with all kinds of implements of torture. The screaming is coming from a man who is hanging from the ceiling by his wrists and the laughter 
is coming from his torturer, a hooded, bare-chested man who's holding a smoking branding iron. Do you want to help the captive or just, you know, go about your business? I mean, I'm going to help. I'm definitely going to help. Now, I feel as though if there's one job you shouldn't be doing for the love of it, it's torture. The man hears you close the door and advances towards you to attack you with his branding iron. He's got a skill of eight and a stamina of eight. going to roll some of them dice. Yes. Well, truly no good deed goes unpunished because the torturer has very handily beaten me to death with a branding iron. So my adventure into the Temple of Terror ends there. Well, I'm going to be back in just a couple of moments with some closing remarks. Tatty bye. So that was Temple of Terror. I really rather enjoyed it. Very much in the classic fighting fantasy mould, and it makes an interesting contrast, I think, with the Grail quest we covered in our last bonus episode, as well as an interesting contrast with Ian Livingstone's previous book set in Alansia, Caverns of the Snow Witch, which we covered a couple of months back, not least because it has the opposite structure, despite sharing a fair degree of design similarity under the hood. Ian Livingstone likes his readers to see the bulk of the book on a complete playthrough. His books tend towards a fairly linear construction. So Caverns of the Snow Witch had a short prologue section, a dungeon, and then a long travel section that, to be fair, seemed to go on forever. Temple of Terror inverts that structure to give us a short prologue, a medium travel section, and then finally a typical Ian Livingstone dungeon. And I think this way of doing it feels more satisfying, especially if you've done much kind of classic old school role playing, where the dungeon tends to be the climax of the adventure, the place where you test your wits against the fiendish ingenuity of the dungeon designer. And there are few dungeon designers more fiendish, I think, than Ian Livingstone. We'll get to the temple portion of the adventure in a bit. First, I want to talk about magic and why it works better than the magic in the Grail Quest book, Den of Dragons. Now, in that game book, you had a big list of spells, which you could cast mostly whenever you liked. You could cast them a variable number of times with a successful roll, and there was a health penalty for using them as well. Now, these different factors, as I talked about on the previous episode, they combine to disincentivize magic use quite strongly. Now, Temple of Terror takes a much simpler attack. You get four spells, you can cast them as often as you like, usually with a small stamina penalty, but only when prompted by the book. It's much more restrictive, but the fact that you'll always succeed at the casting, and that the book is pretty good about flagging appropriate circumstances to use the spells, that makes them feel much more useful. They're never absolutely necessary. They'll help you through a situation, but there's usually another way through, even if that way is taking a big hit to the face. And the stamina penalty is small enough that even if you're not sure, it often feels like a worthwhile risk to try a spell. Den of Dragons gives you much more freedom, but in such a way that it leads, in my case at least, to decision paralysis. Sometimes reducing choices frees you to be able to actually make a choice. One thing I liked very much about Temple of Terror is the two different paths to the desert. You can either go overland or by river and ocean, taking a brief city break in Port Blacksand on the way. The two approaches feel thematically very different and both have their own perils and their own opportunities. 
Of course, this being only a Livingstone book, only one of them is the correct path, and there's stuff you do early on in the book which has repercussions later on. I would have preferred these to feel a little more like distinct elements of the adventure. I liked the structure of City of Thieves, where you knew that you had to have certain items before you went to take on Zanbar Bone, and as long as you'd got all of those items, you knew that you could progress to the next stage of the adventure. There wasn't, I don't think, any hidden items that he didn't tell you you needed. Ian Livingstone does love using inventory management as a way of keeping his section design fairly clean. It's a good way of keeping encounters streamlined, but it does get a little bit repetitive to be asked for the millionth time whether you have this trinket or that trinket, or to be faced with trying to work out which of the three apparently innocuous objects in your backpack will help you get past the latest surreal monstrosity. Now that brings us neatly onto the encounters. It's beyond hackneyed at this juncture for me to point out how well the desert encounters evoke the sense of being in a deadly expanse of sand. So I'm going to pass straight over those and focus instead on the temple encounters. These are often brilliantly evocative and strange and show just how good Livingstone is at creating deadly but fascinating environments. There's some amazing creature designs throughout the dungeon portion which are shot through with just enough Egyptian flavour to make them feel appropriate to the setting but not to the extent that it ends up feeling like a pastiche, a kind of Abbott and Costello meets the mummy sort of feel. That's really threading the needle of fantasy design for me. The temple also has possibly my all-time favourite monster, the Messenger of Death. The Messenger of Death has a very strong visual image, this emaciated figure with foul fluid dribbling from every facial orifice. That's truly repulsive. But the sadistic game it plays is even more evocative for me. I love the idea that words or even letters have power, and the concept of this vile spellcaster essentially tricking you into casting a death spell on yourself one letter at a time that's grimly fascinating. I didn't find any letters in this playthrough, but on subsequent attempts, it was always shocking to find another letter that brought me closer to death as I ransacked the temple in search of the dragon artifacts. It's obviously sadistic, given that you know you're going to have to search diligently to find those artifacts, which are inevitably squirreled away in all sorts of obscure places. Now, if this was a regular tabletop game, I don't think this would work at all. Your players would rightly kick off if you set it up so that they were playing Russian roulette, essentially, every time they searched for treasure, and then told them that they have to constantly search for treasure. However, in a game book, where part of the pleasure is making repeated attempts, it works a treat. Especially because there's actually a fairly easy clue to get that helps you avoid at least one of the letters and you need all of them to be actually struck dead. So he's, it's cruel, but it's actually not that likely to kill you, which is a very, very neat balancing act. One of the highlights in terms of the early encounters is the fight between the pterodactyl and the giant eagle, whereby your survival hinges on another creature's ability to fight. You can make it a bit easier with either the bow or a spell, but ultimately you're going to be dependent on your massive bird to do the business. It's a bit cruel to make the bird less good at fighting than the pterodactyl, but it certainly makes for an exciting early set piece with the serious potential to end the career of even the most fortunately rolled character. And once again, we see that despite its simplicity, the fighting fantasy engine can be twisted into many different forms with a little ingenuity. 
One thing that struck me when I was doing subsequent playthroughs is that Temple of Terror presents you with a dungeon that's in the process of being recolonized. You have an empty city, partially reclaimed by the desert, which has stood ruined and desolate until the priestess Leisha has come along to move in. And she's brought with her various evil denizens, but there's also other people and things that feel like they've drifted in as word spreads that Vatos is inhabited again. They've begun making the place properly livable, but there's still some more animalistic monsters that haven't yet been got rid of from when it was a proper ghost city. I love that feeling of a setting that has a past, and the sense that had you not come along, it would also have had a future as Leisha continues to redevelop the place and draw more and more people to it. She's a much more interesting figure in the story than the supposed villain, who basically pops up at the end for a fight, but otherwise doesn't intrude on the narrative at all. As well, this book feels like it's doing quite a lot to develop Alansia as a setting. It does that thing which a lot of good sequels do, whereby we start somewhere quite familiar and go somewhere new. So it's nice to see Stonebridge and Yaz Tromo as a callback to the Forest of Doom. Then we get a sequence that places Darkwood Forest in physical relation with Port Blacksand. And then finally set off to totally unfamiliar climbs in a different biome to any that we've seen before. What's interesting is that as the setting develops, we see relatively little of any overarching political theme or presence. Alansia at this point seems to be a series of tiny states where anyone with a few magical abilities or simply a great idea for a murderous theme park can set themselves up as a local power. There's no big empire or kingdom in charge, which gives everywhere a slightly provincial feel, but at the same time makes an adventurer feel so they can shape the destiny of a small portion of the land at least. There's no centralised authority and no standing army that ought to be dealing with things. It makes sense that lone adventurers aided by the odd dwarf or wizard should be the first recourse when things go wrong. That gives it an anarchic flavour, I think. That's perhaps what distinguishes the fighting fantasy world from maybe other quite similar fantasy settings. Anyway, that's enough analysis for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed listening. If you have, then why not leave this podcast a rating on either Apple Podcasts or Google Play? That would be very much appreciated. I do have a Patreon, so if you're feeling super excited and want to help fund my extravagant lifestyle of remaining indoors, then it's at patreon.com hjdoom. Now, I'll be back very soon, I hope, with a playthrough of Rings of Kether. Will this one be the book to break the curse of the space-based fighting fantasy books being rubbish? Tune in to find out, but until next time, goodbye and take care.